Hey, it's Lucas here. Just wanted to drop a quick thank you for all your support since we've launched AF Fireside. These conversations have been awesome, the response has been awesome, and we've got a lot more coming for you. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your streaming platform of choice, and make sure you let us know what you think and who we should talk to next on Instagram at shopaf.co and at lucasfits. Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So, sit down. Grab a whiskey or coffee or beer and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. All right, welcome back to another episode of AF Fireside. I got Jason Schott here. He's the COO of Schott NYC. If you ever worn a leather jacket, if you ever heard of a leather jacket, I'm sure you've heard of the brand. Uh, coming at us from the Shot Factory in New Jersey, right? Yes. Welcome to the factory. Love it. Love it. If you're watching here on video, you'll see, well, it's a factory not really in motion, right? Everybody's gone home for the day. Yeah, the sound quality wouldn't be quite as good if uh, <laughs> the sewing machines were going at the same time. So we're doing a little after hours filming. That's right. That's right. Love it. Cool, man. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, you know, as I said, the, the brand's super iconic. Uh, I know if, you, if you're into the same kind of style that I'm in, and even if you're into a different kind of style, I'm sure you've heard of the brand. So this is going to be a really cool, cool insight into the way that things work on the micro level. Can you give just a high level overview of, of Shot NYC for those that aren't familiar with the brand yet? Sure. So we are a, an American clothing company, um, most known for leather jackets. Um, beyond that known for jackets, but, um, my great grandfather started the business in 1913, um, making fur lined raincoats. He was the inventor creator of the motorcycle jacket. Um, wow. made jackets for the military since before world war II. um, motorcycle jackets that have gone to some pretty amazing places. Um, and here we are in the factory still making jackets in the U S um, and we broadened out to be more of a lifestyle brand and offer other categories, um, both in our factory and also in some other factories and some even outside the U.S. Uh, that tell the story of Americana, of the history of, of our brand, as well as of the U.S. Cool. Can you share a couple of those kind of iconic moments in history or, or names that people definitely recognize that have worn a shot jacket throughout the years? You know, we're very fortunate we were a factory for a very long time. Um, we got into the, the part about telling our story much later, but our jackets have ended up on the backs of James Dean, Marlon Brando, the Ramones, Springsteen, um, wow. more modern icons like um, Jay-Z and Lady Gaga, um, Adam Levine. And um, I'm trying to think, I mean, I mean, if you if you don't know at least one of those names, you're you're <laughs> under a rock or something. That's that's really impressive. Really it's cool. funny because certain people, um, we have to walk a fine line because we don't want to be too self promotional. Sure. Um, I think one of the more characteristic, um, our product is rugged. It's meant to be durable and last a long time. But it's also um, we're not too gratuitous with our branding. Sure. Um, and so it's kind of subtle when we, when we crow about it too much, I think people don't like hearing that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we never pay anybody to wear our, our clothing. We, it's kind of cool to us because sometimes we don't even know how it happened. Um, right. but it's just great that our jackets leave our factory, go out and live these amazing lives and, and have more of a story to tell after they've left. And, um, you know, that's the part that's most exciting to us. Cool. Very cool. So you said 1913, correct? Yes, that's, that's right. That's I, I'm trying to think of somebody that I know, you know, a brand that I know that's older than that. I, at least in my frame of reference, I can't. That's pretty old, man. <laughs> that's yeah, really cool. There are a few, but um, 
not too you, many. Did you know your great grandfather growing up? I did. Yes. Wow. I was very fortunate. My great grandfather um, lived to 99. And wow. He, I was 17 when he passed away. And um, so I really got to know him very well. Of course, even at 17, I wish I asked different questions. You know, I've got a lot of questions now that it didn't occur to me to ask him when I was a kid. He was just such a proud guy of what he had built um, Mm -hmm. as he should be. Um, And he was coming to the factory into his late 90s. Um, he'd love to walk the floor and, uh, keep an eye on the production and just kind of take in what he had built at that point. My, my grandfather, my uncle, my mother had all joined into the business. And so he was just a figurehead at that point, but, but still very proud of what he built. Wow. So what was your awareness of the family business when you were a kid? You know, we, for a long time, we were better appreciated and better known outside the U.S. And mm-hmm. I think I think most American brands that have lasted for as long as we have, have that period of time where they get discovered by the rest of the world. And that kind of helps to carry them. Um, right. Made in America wasn't always valued and appreciated in the U.S. Mm-hmm. the way it was in other countries. And so, um, you know, I think I was a little bit sheltered from the brand you know i think as a little kid i would come to the factory and it was just like a playland you know i get to jump off of the big cutting tables into um you know piles of quilts and um drive a golf cart around this massive factory and um you know it was just a, a place to explore and get lost and um it wasn't until later that i really appreciated what we did as a brand as a factory um, everyone in the family starts at the bottom, you know, mm-hmm. so my introduction working here was during the summers where I would sweep floors and load trucks. And, um, you know, it was, you, you, you get hit on, you, you basically take crap from every angle because there's a lot of people that are working there that think you're there out of some form of nepotism and maybe that's true. So you have to prove yourself that you belong there, you know, and then your family treats you like a little kid. And, and so you have to prove yourself to them as well. Um, and so I think it was a great experience to work there in the summers. And then we have this unwritten family rule where they kind of send you off to go work somewhere else before you can come back and join full time. Interesting. So did, did you, when was the point that you knew that, you had a future with the company. So it's always in the back of your head. For me, it was always in the back of my head. Um, you know, I have a background as a CPA, as an, an accountant. So when I left here, I worked for uh, one of the big four public accounting firms for a number of years. And um, there's just not, that's just not as exciting. It's just not as fulfilling. Um, I enjoyed what I was doing, but, you know, in the factory, you have an opportunity to actually build something. You know, at the end of the day, we can go to the front of the factory and see, you know, a couple hundred jackets that came off the line that we made. And, um, you know, that's something of which to be really proud. So that was always in the back of my mind. And um, so when I ended up coming on board full time, um, like 1999, it was my family kind of came to me and said, if you were thinking about coming now, it's the time. And uh, I was ready. Very cool. So what was the role that you came back to the company in? Well, I didn't want to come back and do accounting because that wasn't very exciting to me. Um, sure. But but I think basically everybody has to find their own role. Every family member that joins the company kind of needs to just find their own place. Um, and so I got involved in the marketing Um, I got involved in the internet. Um, it's, it's a challenge when you've got these multi-generational businesses, there's, it's hard to find that fine line between, um, your family giving you too much credit and giving you Mm -hmm. not enough credit. I think sometimes there's family businesses where the, the previous generation thinks that they're 
their son, daughter is so wonderful that they can do everything. And that's a mistake. Um, and then the other case is sometimes they think you don't know what you're talking about and you can bring in these fresh ideas. So mm-hmm. um, having the internet, the e-commerce, getting involved in that stuff, no, there was nobody in the business doing that. So it was easy for me to kind of have my own area of expertise. And sure. I've spoken to a lot of people who've gone into family businesses. And I think it's really important that every, anyone who goes into a family business has their area. They have to have enough room to operate where they can mess up a little bit and they can build their own expertise. If they just have to get approval for every step of the way, for everything they do, they're not going to learn anything. They're not going to bring in any fresh ideas. Um, And so I had those areas where I could grow and, and that helped a lot. Sure. Was there ever a point that you considered not returning to the family business? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think that there was a time when I looked at joining the business and maybe it wasn't the right time for some of the sure. other family members that were there. And, um, you know, I kind of had to go through the interview process mm-hmm. and I was like, screw this. Like, I don't, I'm not doing it. And next time they'll approach me and, um, it, it was, it worked out. It was, it was the right way to do it. I think you don't want to feel like you're forced into a situation that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, you don't want to be forced upon anyone in the business. And so right. um, it, it's a tricky one, but yeah, it, it took some time to think through it. But at the time in 99, when I came on, I was all gung ho about it. I was all ready. Nice. Yeah, cool. So it sounds like, you know, obviously you're four generations in and and that's that's a huge accomplishment, right? I'm sure a lot there are far more family businesses that are maybe two generations in or three generations in. So you guys right. have had a little bit more time to figure out what the systems look like. But it looks like it seems you know, it feels like you guys have a, a system put in place. How many shot family members have gone through that system in the time since since the founding? Oof. Um so in my generation, there have been three of us. Okay. Three from the previous generation. And then note four. Two, it's about 10. It's about 10 people. Okay. okay. Um, daughter. So my youngest is 20. But when she was 16, she said, um, when I get older, am I expected to work at shot? Because I'm not sure I want my future laid out for me like that. And I said, without skipping a beat with that attitude, who says we're going to want you? I mean, the the reality (laughs) is there's no guaranteed place for anybody in the family. Um, Obviously if somebody needed a place or needed help, we would help them, but you know, we're, everyone needs to be able to prove themselves and it's not healthy for anybody to feel like they're stuck. Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone to not appreciate why they're here. So let's look at, you know, we, we have the, the name of the brand obviously is your last name and that's a really important component of everything. The other half of the brand name though, is the city it was born in, right? Shot NYC. Yes. In what ways is, you know, the culture of New York city integral to the brand story and ethos? So I think New York city is another one where it's such an iconic city and it's so appreciated maybe when you live in New York, maybe you don't appreciate it as much, although a lot of people do. Um, but throughout the world, New York City is where you've made it, you know, literally. Um, there's a diversity to it. There's a, a rugged aspect. Um, it's, it's tough, New York City, you know, and you need to be ready for anything. And I think that those are attributes that are really um, – worked well with our products you know we mm-hmm. it's it's always been you know our our home even though our factory is in new jersey now it's always been our home and our heart mm-hmm. in new york city and i think it's to the rest of the world i think new york city kind of represents america mm-hmm. so um you know we've tapped into that as well do you have a personal tie to the city as well yeah of course um you know, it's during the pandemic right now that we're all dealing with. It's just, it's, 
there have been some really scary times going through New York where, um, you know, a lot of buildings are boarded up at times and, and, you know, you just doesn't have the, um, the same livelihood, the same life. I mean, it's, there's, it, it's not buzzing the way it should be buzzing. And I'm sure that right. you can say that about other places, but it's just, it's so visceral in New York. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot, you know, I'm dying to go back out to brunch and um, there's, there's a place called Bubby's in the meatpacking district and has great fried chicken. Or um, I was talking to my wife and I realized we realized that she's never been to Peter Luger's and it's an iconic steak restaurant that is like, you know, the, the tables have been used so often that like it's the, the tables are worn in where people have put their arms, their elbows, and there's just this, um, you know, it, it, it's alive. The the restaurant itself, even with nobody in it, it just has this aura. And I think kind of that exemplifies New York to me. There's a Mm -hmm. buzz to it, even without all the people out all the time. Um, and that's the part that I think I really identify with. Right. Yeah. Even, even, you know, from the perspective of someone, try to go down there as often as I can, but I'm not a native New Yorker. Right. But anybody can put, put their thumb on that heartbeat. Right. It's got such a unique recognizable heartbeat that, yeah, I, I haven't been since, since the pandemic hit, obviously, but I'm itching to itching to be back. And now I've got a couple of places that I got to check out. Yeah. I'll give you a list. The, I um, love it. The thing for me is ever know what's going to happen in New York like yeah. only in New York, you know, it's, um, you're walking down the street and all of a sudden, like, uh, I, you know, Ray Donovan, Liev Schreiber is riding his bike down right by me on in Soho. Cause he lives down there, you know, and he's yeah. just out and about, or, um, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio walked into our store or, um, you know, even I had a cool experience where our, we have a store on Elizabeth street in Nolita which is north of Little Italy for those who don't know the, the acronym. Um, and so I walk in, I'm walking in the store and the manager comes out and grabs me and says, um, Ralph Lauren is inside. Like, oh, okay. So I go in and it's Mr. Ralph Lauren. Um, and he had convinced them we had a vintage jacket up on the wall. Um, he came to check out the store. I'm not exactly sure hmm. what made him think of us or um what brought him in that day but uh he came in and there was a vintage jacket and he convinced the staff to let him try it on and it happened to fit him perfectly so he wanted to buy our vintage jacket and um you know it it didn't feel right selling him our vintage jacket but i did loan it to him um (laughs) and he wore it a few times and um you know it was just it was just a cool experience that that's the kind of thing that can happen in new york and um, we ended up doing a couple of collaborations with double RL because he just liked the brand, you know, he liked us. And, um, yeah. I feel like those kinds of things happen in New York more than anywhere else in the world. Totally. Yeah. That, that's like a, a very sensible collaboration there between, you know, RRL, uh, shot, but you guys also strike up collaborations with brands that maybe, you know, you could say visually or aesthetically aren't, aren't the, cho- the choice that you would think would go. You know, I think you guys have done some collaborations with Supreme. Mm-hmm. What is, what's the process, what's the process in visualizing and executing a collaboration with somebody that isn't, you know, your next door neighbor? I think it has to happen organically. I think with Supreme, they, they have such a, a finger on the pulse of, what's real out there, what's happening. Um, but they also really appreciate authenticity. And I think that's a huge part of their longevity is that, you know, they're always focusing on that authenticity. And so um, they approached us. They wanted to, I think they found some of our vintage jackets and wanted to recreate them with their own flair. Um, and it's really been a great, partnership you know we've gone through i don't even know how many seasons 10 at least seasons with them 
And, um, you know, they're always pulling vintage jackets of ours from wherever. And, you know, they'll come back to us and, and put their twist on it. And it's, it's a really nice partnership. It works cool. out really well. And I think that's what happens. Like you have to have a meeting of the minds, you know, you meet another brand and you have these discussions and, um, if you can have a meeting of the minds, we don't want to be gratuitous about it and just take our jacket and throw a different, a different zipper on it and call it a day. Like it has right. to be more organic and more natural. But I like those projects where you can kind of take a look at it and see what each side brought to the, brought to the pieces. And those yeah. are the exciting ones. That's really cool. It's such a buzzword. Yeah, it, it, collaborations is such a buzzword right now, and every market person wants to do them. And um, but it has to make sense; otherwise, it's overused. Right. No, I think there will definitely be a point, maybe sooner than later, that that word will lose meaning in the way that we've always clung to it too. And we're going to have to think about what it means to collaborate with somebody on a different level. So it's cool to know that you guys are definitely ahead of the curve there. You talk about all these vintage pieces that are out there, right? Mm -hmm. And consumers have the choice of, you know, do I try to source an, a vintage piece? Do I go with something new? And do you ever feel like you're in competition with <laughs> the product that came out, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 100 years ago? Is there is there a need to stay on top of, you know, to, to, to beat your old self? That's a good question. Um, you know... Here, the difference I would say is that the thing that makes those 40, 50 year old jackets so special is because they're so beat up because they tell such a story. And so they're kind of the model for us in a lot of, a lot of the time we're going and grabbing these old vintage jackets and using them to try to tell the current story, but make it look like it's 50 years old. Right. Um, and so it's it's just different i mean um they they're a guide for us but in no mm -hmm. way do i find them competition at all right yeah it's a, that's an interesting concept right that you have you know maybe you don't have all the institutional memory of the generations before you but you have you know the physical representation of that memory to learn from yeah i mean i it's funny we i don't know if you know um rin tanaka who did the My Freedom series of books. Um, and he does like a big vintage gathering. And um, so he used to do these vintage gatherings, mostly in LA, sometimes in New York. And he would bring all the top vintage dealers. And a lot of the, particularly the Japanese who are, have been, they were on the vintage game long before most people in the US were. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they always wanted like, the pure dead stock unworn like the the cleanest freshest possible item from as old as possible and for me i always appreciated the stuff that was beat up the stuff that was worn um and so you know going at those to those vintage shows it was kind of easy for us to find the hidden gems that we were looking for because most people were looking for they didn't want the patina they didn't want it to look beat up but that to me is, is the, that's the gem for sure. You know? Do you, do you have any vintage pieces in your personal collection that you gravitate towards? Well, at this point, it's just jackets that I've been wearing for a very long time. Sure. Um, you know, so Rin, we, we did a book with Rin for our hundredth anniversary and he kind of lectured us as a family. We were not very good about holding on to all of the archives. I mean, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of brands that are starting right now that are not aware of it. You know, mm -hmm. hold on to all that stuff. Right. Um, keep as much of your archives as you can and your samples and, um, you know, first build it so it will last mm -hmm. and then hold on to it. Because we used to get rid of it every year. We would have a factory sale and clean everything out. And um, so when we went back to try to, put a book together, put archives together. We had to start from scratch and, and Rin lectured me and said, you know, the number one collector of Harley Davidson is Harley Davidson. 
You know, the number right. one vintage collector of Levi's is Levi's. And the number one collector for shot should be shot. And um, so we've systematically over the last 20 plus years built our, uh, built our vintage collection. So it's respectable, but we're not there where, where we yeah. like. Do you have that on display anywhere? Or can, can people see that collection publicly? It's here in the factory. We did, you know, we, when we had our 100th anniversary, we had a little museum exhibit. Um, and you know, there's some stuff that I'd love to add to our archives. Um, mm -hmm. we did a collaboration with Jeremy Scott a number of years ago, and, um, he wanted to print this Keith Haring artwork on it. So we went to the Haring foundation to get permission. And they said, yes, of course you can do it. We actually have a jacket here that Keith, Keith Haring painted. And, um, after they checked the label, it turned out it was a shot jacket, um, We've since found five of our jackets that have been painted by Keith Herring, um, but none of them are in our possession because they're a right. little expensive right now. Um, For sure. There's a Basquiat, like Basquiat doodled on one of our jackets. Um, at Glenn O'Brien, who um, was the style guy from GQ for a long time, it, it was his personal jacket. And I, I don't even know it's, it's still in his family um, in their possession, but somebody else chiseled one of our jackets out of um granite i believe and so wow we got all of this stuff back together for a, a museum exhibit that we did during our 100th anniversary and i would love to do it again and i'd love to add some of these pieces but um we still have a little room to go very our, cool yeah wow so when you were growing up around the brand was it was it the same level of iconic that it is now? No. And so I, I guess to go back to that question about what was it like growing up with a brand, I, I have an older cousin who worked here for 17 years. And, um, and I guess for him, he always had a weird time. He went to school um, in at Ithaca. And uh, I remember people like, why, why does all your clothing have your name all over it? Like they didn't really understand it. Sure. Um, and so for him, it was a little bit weird. For me, it was always a sense of pride. Um, and it never gets old seeing people wearing. I, I have this bad habit of feeling like the jackets are still mine when I'm out in the world and I see one of our jackets. Like, I just, I want to feel the jacket and um, make sure it's still holding up well. And, you know, I, like, right. I see a jacket and I want to feel it. Like, I feel the leather. It's just a, something I'm used to doing, but I have to remind myself I can't walk up to a random person and like touch their jacket because right. I'm just so used to grabbing jackets around the factory. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting. I, I, I've never heard that sentiment vocalized before, <laughs> but I wonder how many people, you know, that, that own brand, you know, run brands, make cool products. I wonder, people must feel that way, right? You know, you want to be a part of that brand experience once you've handed ownership over to its new owner. That's really so interesting. I was in... I was in Belgium once, like I was flying to Italy and I was in an airport and I saw a guy wearing a vintage jacket of ours mm -hmm. and it looked really good. And, you know, I guess I'm, I'm fortunate that our, we have some really great fans of the brand and um, they, they give us energy. I mean, they really fuel us. And so sometimes it's nice to be able to talk to people who appreciate the brand and I think it's something we always strive when we build product, we want the user experience to get better over time. Mm -hmm. So I see this guy with this great looking vintage jacket. That's a shot jacket. And I walk up to him in the airport and I say, Hey, nice jacket. He says, Oh, it's just some jacket. I'm like, no, it's not just some jacket. It's a shot jacket. It's like, whatever. Like now I'm the strange guy who is obsessing over a jacket. Right. <laughs> he just bought, I don't know. I don't know how he got it. He didn't feel like sharing. Um, yeah. But that's rare. Most of the time when I see somebody who's wearing one of our jackets and we get to talking, they have this emotional connection with it. And that mm -hmm. that's what we strive for. You know, we want people to have this emotional connection that the jacket is an extension of them. And it's it's theirs. It's not ours anymore. Now it becomes mm -hmm. theirs. They go off and do whatever they want to do with it. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a cool, I guess, 
I'm not sure how I would respond if somebody came and was like, hey, man, I guess I would respond and be like, oh, yeah, you made my jeans cool. I probably know you anyway. But I guess <laughs> maybe if I wasn't expecting that interaction, that might be weird. Yeah, it could have been a bad <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, totally. But no, I mean, with a company with so much history, it must be a challenge to strike that balance between, you know, honoring the deep heritage that you, you have in the brand, but also keeping things fresh, you know, not going stale, trying new things. How do you, in, in terms of, you know, design and execution, how do you maintain that balance? Yeah, you know, sometimes because this is the only jacket factory I've ever worked in, sometimes I have to gauge from other people's perspective, like why I, I, I've tried to spend a lot of time to learn what makes us different or unique. And sometimes it's just a feeling that I have that sure. yes, this is us or no, it's not us. Um, it's a little bit hard to define sometimes. Um, and sometimes, you know, we have some of the technical people in our factory who have taught me over the years, like, yeah, that's not how everybody does this. Cause I don't know another way. Mm -hmm. um, but we're always trying, you know, and that, that's an idea. That's, that's a place where collaborations help us sometimes because they push our limits. Like sometimes we collaborate with another brand and they want to do something different. And so we're learning new skills in the factory. Right. Um, and so, so that's a nice part, but I think we look at our history as our inspiration for the future, but it would get boring if we were just doing the same thing all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's a fine line. I was at a trade show a number of years ago where we were trying to sell to a bunch of wholesale accounts and, um, some, one of the buyers walked by, Oh yeah, shot. You guys are the motorcycle jacket people. I don't need motorcycle jackets. It's like, no, no, no. We do a lot more than no. He said, stick with the motorcycle jackets. Like they want to put us in this, um, it, they want to know us for one thing and they want us to always be there for that. Um, and so you know, that's something we have to navigate with customers, with our fans, where we have to make some jackets that will stand up on their own because there's fans that want that. But we also have to make things that you can wear that are more comfortable. I mean, right now, not everybody wants to spend a year breaking in a new leather jacket. Um, and so, you know, when comfort is so key right now, we have to make jackets that are going to be really comfortable. Um, and, and we're always looking for new leathers, um, coming up with new bodies or things that we haven't done in a while. We're, you know, we're trying to keep ourselves interested in this. And, and so we're mm -hmm. always looking to innovate in that way. Very cool. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier that, you know, in, in the, well, we'll say recent past, cause you've had a very long history in the recent past, you've expanded to more of an all encompassing lifestyle brand. What was, what was that transition like? Um, yeah. So as, as a company that was always the factory first, like, so when I was 16, um, I got to go to the Detroit Grand Prix because our European distributors sponsored a Formula One race car. So there was like a shot Formula One race car. It was absolute last. I mean, it, there was no way it was competing with Ferrari and, you know, some of the other Formula One race brands, but sure, um, it was an incredible experience for me. That's pretty cool. That. Um, and so that was kind of the lesson in how other people saw us. I mean, this, so in Europe, they kind of expanded. So they would buy the jackets that we produce in our factory. Mm -hmm. And then they had a design team that was kind of making it look like this is what the Europe, what this is what the, product would look like the product extension for stuff that we didn't make. Um, mm -hmm. And so it took a long time in the, not until the last 20 years where we started looking at that for ourselves and saying, well, what would it, what would an extension look like for us? And um, sometimes it's playing around with, you know, making belts and some small leather goods in the factory. Um, sometimes it's making sweaters and some other categories that just, work well with our jackets and kind of tell the story it's i don't know it, it's um another thing that just keeps us inspired and keeps us interested in in the process cool yeah it's the sad unfortunate fact for a lot of reasons there are certain things we just can't make in this factory and mm -hmm. in this country anymore 
um, in a lot of cases, you know, a lot of our suppliers have gone away. And so, mm-hmm. you know, most of our suppliers are now, well, there's a good percentage of our suppliers that are outside the U S now. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, you know, we, the way we ran our factory in the eighties and nineties, we were much more focused on specific products because we could do that. Whereas now in order to be a factory and be successful in the U S we have to have flexibility. So we have to be able to branch out and, and evolve our product offering based on the, the needs of the market. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I want to go back to that. You know, the, the, the race car moment, which mm. is what, what a cool, you know, memory to look back on. And I bet I selfishly, I, I want to know what it was like to go back to school the next week and be like, Oh yeah, I went to the, went to this grampy with race car by name, but that's maybe a story for a different, different day, I guess. So, so that was the moment that you realized the, the gravity of the shot name. There were a couple of moments like that. Um, but I have to say, my family was always good about keeping us grounded. Um, and I certainly try to do the same thing with my kids. Um, you know, it was all about working. My grandfather always said, you know, you have to be able to do every job or be willing and able to do every job mm-hmm. or they'll, somebody will pull the wool over your eyes. And, and that was sure. his mentality. I mean, he was um, happiest fixing machines. You know, he would go around the factory with the mechanic working on the machinery because that's where he felt happiest. Um, I have a tie clip that was, it was my great grandfather's tie clip and it was, it's become the family motto, but the it's um, you can't do business sitting on your ass. Y C D B S O Y A. And, and that really has always been the family mantra. And so um there was never any time to uh, bask in the glory of the name. It was all about, it was certainly more responsibility to make sure you live up to the name than um, something to uh, usurp or, or take advantage of. So you kind of, kind of answered my next question there. What, what's it like to carry that burden, you know, to, to uphold the family name? I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because it doesn't, it, it really, as much as it means something to me, I can't allow that to change anything about who I am or how I would act. Um, because let's face it, while yes, it's, it's, I can step back and realize that the fact that we've been around for, you know, 108 years is an incredible achievement as a company, as a brand. And, and I want to use that for good, mm-hmm. you know, to continue to build products to continue to keep people sewing in America, um, to keep fans who love our brand, hopefully, um, and keep them happy. But, um, you know, it, it, we're sewing our name into all of these items that we're producing. It ha- comes with that a huge sense of responsibility. Um, and, and a tremendous sense of pride, but, you know, I can't rest on, on that. It's like, it's my job to make this a better place in every way. I mean, to make it a better place to work, to make it, um, you know, to please our fans and, and give them products that they're happy with that, that they're excited to see. Um, and, and that's a big part of what I miss about, everyone's in lockdown right now, you know, New York city, the, there's still the ghosts are there. The, you know, the aura is there, but we really do feed off of the personal interactions with our fans. And for me to be able to walk into our store and, and have customers come in and to be there anonymously where they don't know who I am. I just want feedback from them. And I, I want to hear what they really think about the brand, about the products. And, and that's something that I'm always learning from. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I am very proud of our company, but I feel like for me, there's always more we can do. There's always more I can do to make it a better place. Cool. I want to talk about a little bit more about those person to person interactions. I know that 
you know, you guys did wholesale for a very long time and then made this jump to retail, you know, having retail stores with the shot name on them fairly recently, correct? So, you know, we had a store. My great-grandfather started selling door-to-door in the 1910s and 20s. Um, wow. Opened a store. He went. He was making jackets in a basement and eventually was able to open a factory in the Lower East Side in the 30s and up, in, up through the 1940s. But after the 1940s, we didn't have a store in the U.S. until 2012, we did a pop-up. And that was the okay. first time. So, so um Again, going back to us learning from an outsider's perspective of our brand um, in Europe and in Japan, they started opening shot stores or we started with partners so that um, we could kind of see what it would look like. And we started to learn uh, about it, but it wasn't until 2012 we did a pop up. And we learned a lot. It was a really great experience to get that direct feedback from, from our customers. Were there growing pains in in terms of embarking on a new venture? Were there growing pains of being essentially a hundred years old and trying a new thing? Absolutely. Yes. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's always growing pains about, um, but, but in terms of we were brand new in retail, you know, there's a lot of things that, that we didn't know. And it's, it's funny. We had one retail manager at one point who came from the, I guess had some experience in the department store world. And I think, you know, sometimes you have to understand what, what's right for other brands may not be right for your brand. And I think um, department stores, they discount, they just, they go on sale all the time and they've trained customers that if you buy at full price, you're a sucker, you know, mm-hmm. and it's a terrible thing that they've done. Um, and it's not only department stores, you know, the, you have sales, it works. There's a reason why right. people keep doing it. But if you lean on that too much, um, you devalue the product and the brand. And, um, you know, and so that was something that we, we were hearing, oh, we got to go on sale. We have to do this. We have to close the product out and move it. And it's like, wait a minute. That's not, that's not what we do. Like we're, we're building product that's supposed to last for generations. And, um, you know, they, it's not going to go bad. We're building product. It's not supposed to go bad after a season. Like that's right. not our design aesthetic at all. And, um, and that's the way my grandfather always did it. If we made too many flight jackets in one year, we would sell them the next year. And, um, you know, maybe that's not sexy for fashion, but that's our design aesthetic. It's like, um, you know, we're building here in the factory, we're controlling our production. And so we're not stuck with product. And, um, you know, that was a retail lesson that we kind of learned very quickly that not everybody treats their product that way. You know, for a lot of people, it is disposable fashion. And uh, it doesn't have to be that way. Should it shouldn't be that way? It should not be that. Way. Yeah, yeah. We'll just straight yeah. out say it. Yeah, you know, you should buy products that you, that make you feel good about yourself, that you want to have for a long time, and pass on to, you know, pass down to yeah. future generations. The bottom line, I had a friend recently summarize a thought I've always had, but finally put words to it. We, we vote with our dollars. That's, that's really the, the simplest way to show our values and our ethics is I think the yeah. people that buy the stuff that, that matters, that's we're on the right path there. Just got to get the rest of the world on board. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've heard this as well. Um, we're not asking anybody to buy our jackets because they're made in America. You know, we're, providing a value. I mean, for us, made in America is an advantage. Um, for one thing, we don't have to build extra product and ship it across an ocean to get here and spend an extra couple months getting it here. Um, so we have to forecast, like we're building it here in the factory to demand. So we don't have to make more than, than we can sell. So we don't end up getting stuck with product to, to put on sale. I mean, that's, that's one advantage. Um, and because we're here in the factory every day, 
we're constantly coming up with new ideas and innovating and trying different things. Um, and so that can show in the product, you know, we can make very specific, if you, if you merchandise all the different motorcycle jackets we produce, throw them up on a wall, it's kind of a nightmare. They, there's a lot of jackets that at first glance may all look the same, but each one is doing a different purpose, um, which is why it's good to have our stores because somebody can walk into our stores where we have such a wide offering of the products and they'll get a lesson on what, what all of them do. But, um, but we're able to do those things because we're here in the factory controlling our production. Right. So those, those are advantages and, and just the quality control. Um, we're, I don't know. It's we to reiterate, we're not expecting anybody to spend more because we're made here. We're expecting them to see the value because we're made here. And that's our, that's our mission. Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned innovation, future things to come, anything big on the radar that we should be excited about for, you know, the future of shot NYC, you know, it's, it's really hard to think too far into the future in the middle of a pandemic where, um, you know, it's, we were shut down for, um, I, about five or six weeks when, when things got really bad in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, I think we're pretty darn close to herd immunity here in the factory. Um, I know I had it, my uncle, um, there's, there's a bunch of people. My mom fortunately did not. Um, but there's, I think there's about 65, 70 people here in the factory that have had it. Wow. Um, and we lost one person and it was, it was really, really bad. Um, obviously, you know, we're still getting back from all of that. We're still kind of recovering. And so that, that really forced us to reevaluate the short-term future. Um, and so I know it's a very innocent and, and good question about what to expect from us. And I think, there's a lot of cool things that are going to be coming, but we're, we're a little bit behind on, on getting those out there because we've been pretty heavily delayed with everything. Yeah. So, understandable. Uh, totally. So understandable. We're very happy to have the factory back up and running at full capacity um, and in a safe and socially distanced way. So everybody's wearing masks and staying away from, you know, spaced out from each other. The machines right. are far enough away and we've got the, air filtered so um we're keeping everybody safe and uh we're just very excited for moments when i can you know see people smiling faces around here yeah that i'm sure that sentiment is not lost on anyone i think we're all feeling that way yeah for sure hopefully you know i'm i'm visualizing maybe somebody listening to this a couple years down the road and thinking hey and that was a wild time wasn't it you know, it's hopefully not going to be forever. It's definitely not going to be forever. Yeah. And and there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, things are um, going to get better. Um, and it's kind of remarkable to me that overall, you know, consumer sentiment is high and, mm-hmm. and there's fatigue out there in that people want to go out, you know, and yeah. um, I anticipate this revenge shopping trend where people are going to want to go out and peacock and, um, you know, refresh their wardrobe and go out to, I I'm dying to go out and see live music again. And, um, you know, there's just so many things that we're all waiting and it's going to happen. It's going to be a massive party. Did did you just coin that term revenge shopping? I did not. I I (laughs) did not. I'm going to say, is that, is that an original in China right now? Okay. because they were a little bit better about the lockdown for whatever reason. Yeah. They seemed to be um, opening up a lot more. And, and so they did, I can't take credit for that term revenge shopping, but I like it though. It's a good one. Looking forward to it. Yes. I will say I heard it from you. How's that? Okay. <laughs> cool, man. Well, I got, I got one last question for you. I'm going to paint a picture and you're going to fill in the blanks. Okay. Right. So you're 99 years old. You're walking around the factory. I hope. Uh, you know, you're, yeah, you let's silent prayer there. You're walking around the factory, you're checking out jackets, you're checking out machinery and you look back at your career with shot NYC. 
how would you define a successful career? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I am a one of the family members. I am one of the stewards of the brand. And so my job is to make it a better place for the next generation, whether it's my, my children or my nieces and nephews. And I don't know what that next generation will look like or the generation after that. But, you know, if, if there's still a company making jackets in the U S with our name on it from our family members, I will be very proud. That's awesome. Very cool. I hope that happens. I've, I'm sure it will. You guys have so much legacy going for you. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, it's, we really do care what people think maybe too mm -hmm. much sometimes, but um, we all do. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Is there ever, you know, a, a fear or a contingency plan? What, what if there isn't a, a next shot in line? Uh, there will be, we'll make sure there's yeah. one. There you go. Just well, keep well, making more shots. <laughs> no, that, that ship has sailed on, on my front, but, <laughs> yeah. but there's more shots coming along from some of my cousins. There you go. Um, and so I think we have to keep it an inspiring place. You know, we have to, in our own way, make our, make the next generation want to come here without forcing anybody. Like we have mm -hmm. to, um, I always hear about how much fun this industry used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and and it can be fun and it is fun a lot but um it is it's a lot of work too you know and yeah. so i, I don't want to talk anybody out of coming but at the same time they have to be ready to work hard totally but it's so rewarding that i think i think we'll convince some of them to come on board well i i'm sold if you ever want to adopt me okay just to just to jump off of the cutting tables into the quilts you can do that but after that you gotta sweep it all up okay all right i can get down with that post okay. post lockdown i'll take you up on that <laughs> anytime post lockdown you're on awesome cool jason well totally appreciate you joining us uh it's been a blast um you know to learn about the brand and learn about the unique set of challenges and rewards of being a fourth generation shot in a in a family business that has a 113 year old legacy uh, excited to see, you know, as time goes on, what else you add and how you expand that and, and what comes next from you guys. Where is the best place for, you know, people interested in following along? Where's the best place for everyone to keep in touch? Shotnyc.com. There's links to every social media platform. Um, Perfect. Our mailing list. That's the best way. Perfect. All right. Well, you heard it there. Shotnyc.com. We've been talking to Jason Shot. He's the COO at Shotnyc. Jason, thanks so much, man. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very cool. much. We'll talk again soon, all right? Okay, sounds good. Right. Thanks. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co. And don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.